that they think that uh, getting high is going to make them a better guitar player or a better singer or a better person, have better ideas and more ideas. When the fact of the matter is, is that that's a perception and simply not true. Hi, I'm Matt McKee and welcome to Cherry Bomb the Podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art and sustainability. Today I'm speaking over Zoom with Woody Geisman founder of Right Turn, a creative place for recovery. Just a quick note before we begin, this episode is going to talk about substance abuse, depression, and addiction. If these are sensitive topics for you, please take care while listening. This episode is sponsored by Guacamole, a part of my Sweet Blast series of photos. I created the series with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. You can browse and purchase images in the Sweet Blast collection at theartofmattmckee.com. Please share this episode on your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can listen and join the conversation. Woody, thank you so much for coming on Cherry Bomb, the podcast. Well, good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. One caveat I need to put in front, I recently had a conversation with some friends of mine. They were asking me about some of the subjects that we cover in the show. And today we're going to be talking about addiction. They were asking me how they related to sustainability in art. And I thought a bit about it and realized that if we can't figure out how to sustain ourselves, we will never be able to figure out how to sustain our society and our humanity. And I wanted to speak with you specifically because as I watched my children grow, I reflected on my own youth in the 80s and 90s and began to form some simple rudimentary theories on happiness, addiction, the lizard brain, and things like that. While it seems to be working with my admittedly small sample size of myself and my two kids, I wanted to talk to you more about addiction recovery, the myths around it, and where we are at today. First of all, for those who don't know who you are, can you describe a little bit about your path? Sure. I had a very interesting past. As I tell my sons, you know, I used to be really cool. <laughs> you know, I was signed to Warner Brothers with a group called the Del Fuegos I back in them. the early 80s. Had the privilege of touring with ZZ Top and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers oh, wow. and the Kinks. Hey, I played with James Brown, man. <laughs> and, and I jammed with Bruce Springsteen. Oh, my gosh. Um, so that makes me cool. You know, I, I started off in art school at Wichita State University back in the late 70s. I'm a painter. But I came to Boston and joined the Del Fuegos and ended up living in Los Angeles for the next 10, 15 years, wow. recording and, you know, touring extensively. That was one of the things that the band did well is just play all the time, you know. Yeah. And we learned from some of the best. Yeah. I continued painting and I continue my music. And so I am a creative and I brought all of these experiences into my practice. Well, I got sober in 1990. So I've been in recovery from a substance use disorder for 31 years. Wow. I went back to school and now I'm a licensed addiction specialist, a board certified family interventionist. And I opened the doors to Right Turn, a creative place for recovery, 18 years ago in 2003. And to respond to your question, you know, I wanted to help people tap into their creativity using music and art as a language 
to be able to talk about those underlying issues that may be driving the substance use, help people kind of go back into that wounded child kind of piece and focus on their identity. And, you know, music and art as a language is a very useful tool in evidence-based practices of dialectic behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's a beautiful kind of blend there. Boy, if, if, if I'm wrong about that, then I've really messed up a lot of things. But it seems to be working very, very well. Those are a lot of big words you're throwing around with this stuff. Wow. I'm much more basic than that, I think. My clinical director, James Patterson, not the writer, <laughs> asked me on our first day of working together, he said, how many people that come in to right turn do you think have trauma? And I said, well, that's a rather trick question, a trick question because 100% of people who come into treatment have some form of trauma. Philosophically speaking, everybody has trauma. That's part of life and part of growing. It's how we learn to deal with right. it or not deal with it. Right. When I came into this world of treatment 28 years ago, I was really focused on evidence-based practices. What does that mean? When I came into this world of treatment 28 years ago, probably a majority, if not all of the programs would lead with like 12-step recovery. And that mm -hmm. was their first defense against helping people get sober and helping people address their and arrest their substance use. So that was sort of the baseline that came out of early stuff in, what, the turn of the 19th century? <laughs> so, yeah, 12-step recovery came around uh, 1955, 1956. Okay. And it's very successful stuff, but some people are not well enough to hear 12-step recovery. Okay. So when I was a young lad in the world of treatment, I had the privilege of working with Dr. Mark Albanese and Dr. Ed Kansian at Cambridge Health Alliance here in Massachusetts. And mm -hmm. they are the authors of the self-medication hypotheses. What, what is that? Meaning that if someone has an underlying or covert issue or some kind of a pre-existing condition of depression, for example, and they say that they're using alcohol, well, alcohol is a depressant. So that's probably a good indication of an underlying issue that needs to be addressed. Okay. So we don't want to just treat the alcohol. We want to treat the depression. We want to find that beautiful balance and help them get well on all levels, spiritually, physically, mentally, psychologically. So not just treat the symptoms, but actually go after why they felt the need to. Absolutely right. We want to treat the whole body, mind, and person. And I've found that music and art is a very, very good delivery system because if someone cannot tell me about that pain inside, then they can mm. do a drawing or we can write some music or they can play a song for me that illustrates what they're experiencing. So using a different vernacular than literal. Absolutely. It's, it's a wonderful delivery system that if they can't tell me about the pain, they can show me the pain. And then maybe we can talk about it. So it opens the door for conversations. Let me ask you a basic question, and another one that came up when I was talking with some friends of mine about addiction in general. What is the official definition of addiction? Because people say, well, I'm addicted to coffee. What really is the clinical definition of addiction? 
That's a good question. I like to refer to it as substance use disorder because when we begin to look at the disorder, we start to realize that substance use, misuse, abuse, and going into dependency has changed not only the functions of the brain, Mm-hmm. that they have this impulse control problem that they cannot stop when they want to stop. Okay. But they also have a physical reaction to the substance use, misuse, or abuse, in that now we're looking at the functions of the liver. We're looking at how substance use disorder has impacted the body as well as the mind. Does that make sense, Matt? I think so. We use substances all the time, like aspirin and we use a cup of coffee in the morning to get going we use ketchup to make food taste better but it's not something that is necessarily negatively impacting so ketchup is not an addictive substance although there is sugar (laughs) in it yeah but caffeine is actually up there with nicotine one of the most used and abused substances in america alcohol is not far behind that Mm -hmm. But, you know, nicotine or caffeine are stimulants and therefore addictive substances. Okay. When we talk about substances of abuse, we talk about narcotics, alcohol, cannabis. We also need to include process addictions like gambling, sex, shopping. These are impulse control problems as well that meet the criteria for an addiction in that they do it when they say they don't want to. They do it when they know that it's causing great harm to themselves. They do it when they swear they'll never do it again. You know, (laughs) they'll say, oh, I'll just try it. You know, it's like the alcoholic who says, maybe I'll just drink one shot. And then by the end of the day, they've finished another bottle and a half. Mm. You know, that pleasure system in the brain, that dopamine system has opened up and they can't put the brakes on it. So the dopamine system is one of the symptoms then? Well, dopamine and serotonin are two of the pleasure systems in the brain. Those are naturally occurring. Those are part of our evolutionary regulatory system. And that's exactly what a drug of abuse or a narcotic produces is an overwhelming level of dopamine. And you also said, though, that actions will produce dopamine as well and and cause that same behavior. I run into people who have sports addictions, gambling addictions all the time. Okay. So we call those process addictions or non-chemical addictions. They do meet the criteria for an addiction, you know. Okay. Does that make sense? It does, because another thing that I was reading about when I was doing homework for this was the, the homeostasis of the brain's chemistry, where it wants to be in a neutral state. And so if you do a behavior or if you do a substance, the brain tries to counteract that to bring it back to a neutral state. I'm vastly oversimplifying this, but I think that that part of where the damage occurs with addiction, where you always have to do more and more, you have to go shopping more and more, or have sex more and more. Right, so now you've gone from using to misusing to abusing, and now you're growing dependent on that behavior, whether it's a substance or a process addiction like gambling. You're growing dependent on it, and you feel like you cannot live without it. Hmm. So that's when your brain really starts to change. And I say that as someone in long-term recovery, I get it. 
And in recovery, I've worked with some major, major artists who have come to me and had to address that perception that they didn't know that they could be creative without mm. getting high. Okay. And the fact of the matter is, is that's only a perception. Okay. That they think getting high is going to make them a better guitar player or a better singer or a better person or have better ideas and more ideas. When the fact of the matter is, is that that's a perception. It's simply not true. Mm. I know that when I was goofing around and playing guitar, and I would sing louder when I was drunk, but definitely did not sing better. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I like that, Matt. So someone has a substance abuse or has an abusive relationship with either the behavior or a substance. Well, first, how would somebody identify it in themselves? And then how would you go about starting a recovery process where they realized that it started to impact their life in a way that they did not like? My feeling is, and Right Turn has always made a point of doing individualized treatment plans with people in that one of my skills as a therapist and as an artist is to assess what a person's needs mm. are. So that's a long conversation of getting and doing a full family history. And sometimes this stuff is multi-generational family stuff. You know, maybe Lady Gaga was right when she said, baby, I was born this way. You're talking about genetics or are you talking about behavioral paths? Well, both, both, absolutely. You know, maybe someone was born with a genetic predisposition to alcoholism, as I was. Okay. And my family history proves that over and over. But as an artist, I was on this journey to find myself and discover who I am as an artist, looking through that lens okay. of substance use and abuse. So to answer your question, Matt, it's an individualized approach. Everyone has their own story to tell. Everyone has their own experiences, whether it's with alcohol or cocaine or marijuana or opioids or methamphetamine. It's probably a, a symptom of the greater underlying issue that we need to identify and begin to work on. In terms of working on that, is it actually like building mental systems that would help for them to identify the fact that they're depressed or how to make themselves, quote unquote, happy? That's where evidence-based approaches come in, because we're able to use evaluations and assessments to get down to the bottom of what's going on here. Okay. When did you start drinking and when did you start feeling your depression? Okay. <laughs> and which came first, the chicken or the egg? But Matt, I want to be very clear here that I don't have anything unless I have a relationship with the person that I'm working mm. with. Unless we can have a, an honest and open relationship and conversation, but more importantly, that they trust me, that I will not hurt them. Okay. Because when people have trauma, they're afraid to come out. Yeah. And I'm taking a page out of trauma-informed therapy. It takes six to 12 months for someone to be able to get well enough to be ready to address those deeper issues of trauma. It certainly sounds like it's not one size fits all. It's not like, you know, here's the miracle pill to take to cure all your ills. It's going to take some work and some back and forth to explore it, to discuss it. Yeah. That sounds very challenging. You know, it's a long process. 
And I say that as someone in long-term recovery, it, it has been a long process for me. Mm -hmm. And I say that as an artist in recovery, you know, I'm very grateful to be an artist in recovery today. And some of my formal training in not only in music, but art has been to kind of get down to the essence of who you are, to get down on a deeper level into who are you, where do you see yourself going? How would you like to start to get productive again and pick up the pieces of that wounded child that you left behind? Mm. Okay. So it can become very experiential at that. Yeah. Where we're working together and they're showing me through music, they're showing me through art, who they are, what they left behind, and getting well enough to start to move forward. One of my favorite people is Dr. Jacqueline Small, who wrote a book called Transformer. She talks about the developmental delay of the limbic system, the emotional brain, from substance use. So if someone hmm. comes into my office and is acting like a 16-year-old, and I ask them, when did you start abusing substances, and they say 16, well, then that kind of makes sense to me that they have that emotional delay going on and that they know that they're frustrated and they know that they want to grow, but they've been impaired. When I say substance use disorder, that's a part of the disorder is underdeveloped limbic system. Does that make sense? It does, because I've certainly met people who, at first glance, they seem like they're very mature, capable adults. And then when they get pushed a little bit, I feel like I'm back in high school again, having a conversation with somebody where, you know, they're getting up in your face and they're acting not in their own best interest, usually, and just shouting and acting like a 16-year-old bully on the schoolyard. It always makes me wonder that how far have we matured? And that's really why we need to put good healthy coping skills and strategies and tools in their toolbox and give them some time to get well. Because as they embrace recovery and maybe some of the mindfulness practices and spiritual components of recovery, they begin to regain their identity as a person that they left behind 10 years ago when they started mm. medicating themselves with alcohol. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. It does very much so. One of my theories is about happiness uh, and happiness being something that's fleeting, but we're told we're always supposed to be happy, that I believe that actually it's not the happiness that should be our end goal, but it should be the process solving some problem to gain happiness for that shorter period of time and then go on to something else. What, I guess my question is, how much of it is society's pressures that we feel like we have to live up to that actually are causing these problems? Another really good question there, Matt. You know, I think it's no mistake that the great psychoanalyst Carl Jung referred to alcohol as spirits. And when we drink, it lifts our spirit. Mm -hmm. And we find ourselves feeling very warm and happy. You know, I think that happiness is overrated. That really the goal here for and I say this as an artist in recovery, the goal here is joy, to be able to experience joy in my life. And sometimes we go into the dark side of life mm -hmm. to grab some of those unhappy experiences and bring them into the light or out of the shadow of the mind. 
face it, Matt, some of the most beautiful music is some of the saddest yes. music. Yes, yes. So forget the happy piece. Let's focus on finding joy in our lives. What brings us joy? For me, it's doing a painting of my wife. Mm -hmm. It's sitting at the piano and playing a song for you, you know? For me, <laughs> it's me on my journey of helping people and not hurting people. Yeah. And that's my promise to people that in building a relationship with them, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to hurt you. I will not hurt you. You've done a pretty terrific job of hurting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. It seems like evolution has optimized us towards addiction because we were talking about sugar as one of them from our early history in evolution of scarcity. We couldn't get these things, so we craved them so that we would go out and find them. Society has furthered the idea that it is a great way to make money. So people will make a lot of money selling crappy, unhealthy food, or people will sell drugs. The opioid epidemic, a great illustration of that, I think. We always seem to be drawn to things and actions that are ultimately self-destructive. We're drawn to them. We have a choice not to follow them. How can we learn to avoid or challenge these things like junk food addiction and sugar addiction and things of that nature? We can't fix it if we don't know that it's broken. And I think that we've learned enough about healthy food and diet that we're beginning to change the way that we eat. Mm -hmm. But we're very divided in that area too because some people continue to eat unhealthy. Is that because of the addiction or because of a failure in some type of education system that allows yes. for people and not yes. to understand that? Okay. And yes. And yes. And because we make it available. I mean, it's supply and demand. Mm. You know, one of my favorite stories, man, Mel Torme yeah. wrote this book called Traps the Wizard Kid. It was a story of Buddy Rich. And later on in life, when Buddy Rich would be on tour... He was always known for picking fights with his band members after shows. Hmm. And Mel Torme disclosed that Buddy had boxes of Mars bars and Almond Joys on his tour bus. Uh -oh. After the show, he would come out, get jacked up on sugar, and go pick a fight with the tuba player <laughs> or with the trombone player. Oh, I could feel that because we have actually, over Christmases in our household, we have banned a number of different cookies that we directly relate to some of the most epic family battles. Everyone's storming off to their own corner of the house and no one talking to anyone for two days. Uh, and then everyone came out and apologized, but it was like, okay, so what's causing this? And it was the sugar crash. Well, again, we have much more information and a higher level of education around the impact of sugar on the system, on our bodies, yeah, and salt as well. I mean, come on. Yeah. Let's cut the salt. Let's cut the sugar. <laughs> but it's in everything. All right. If someone is afraid or starting to think that they may have a problem, I can imagine the apprehension that they would feel at that point. What's their next step? What should they do to find out if it's a problem? Should they just call you directly and say, Woody, Woody, what's going on? Or Absolutely. Just Google Right Turn and give us a call. We're happy to help them. You know, we take insurances. So that's not a problem. When I first came into this world, it was really difficult to get into a good program. 
That's been one of my goals is to improve access to treatment. But if someone feels like they may need some help, they need to pick up the phone and call us. Just to find out one way or the other. That number is 781-646-3800. And just press 01 or 03 or 05, and you'll speak to a person who will help you. Okay. But if someone feels like they may be misusing, abusing, or have grown dependent on an unhealthy behavior like substance use, then they probably are. They probably have. Okay. But it's really hard to walk through the fear of picking up the phone and talking to someone and mm. opening up and feeling safe yeah. to be able to talk about it. I know that feeling. I had that feeling 31 years ago. And fortunately, I spoke to the right person and it seemed to have worked because I'm still sober. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. I'm not sure congratulations is necessarily the right term to use. You can say whatever you want. Okay. All I can do is say thank you. It's hard work. Mm. You know, on that journey of trying to discover who I was as this artist actively using drugs, in recovery, I have this beautiful opportunity to create who I want to be. Ooh. I'm not looking for it. I'm acknowledging it's here. Let's do this. Okay. Oh, that's really good. This is always an interesting question when I ask people this, but what do you wish you knew when you started? And I'm going to let you define when started is. When I started what? I'm going to let you define that part. Oh, okay. Well, I had a pretty challenging time growing up. Okay. You know, I lost my brother to substance use. Mm. I jumped into it and it took me where it took me until... I had to recognize that I wasn't the artist that I wanted to be, that I was capable of being much better, and that the drugs and alcohol were not helping me mm. be as good as I wanted to be and knew that I could be. So what I hope to do here and what I feel I've successfully done with this beautiful team of clinicians that I work with at Right Turn is create a safe place for people to come and feel safe enough to open up and start to do some of the hard work. Okay. But sometimes it takes a little while for them to feel safe enough to be able to do that. So you actually just answered my next question, which was, what would you like your legacy to be? <laughs> <laughs> he was a pretty good painter. He was a pretty good, pretty good drummer. <laughs> Always wanted to be a jazz piano player. But, you know, that I help people. And that's what I do, you know. I help people. I'm not here to hurt anyone. Mm. I feel that I've helped a lot of individuals and their families. Mm. I'm sure the work you do impacts more than just the individual that you're working with, just because we are part of an interconnected society. You know, it's multi-generational. It's nothing new that this individual is going through. The family's been suffering with this for generations. Mm. Wow. All right. My last question for you, at the end of the day, Woody, Yeah. after we've talked about sugar and salt and ketchup even, what is your comfort food? <laughs> I love ice cream, man. Oh. My wife makes sorbet for me. Oh, wow. 
Now, remember, I'm an alcoholic in long-term recovery, and the primary neuropathway for alcohol is glutamate, which is your brain's sugar. It's insulin. So I've always had this passion for sweets. Oh, wow. So I'm going to say, at the end of the day, my wife's sorbet. <laughs> Wonderful. I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Blast, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Today's guest is Woody Giesman. You can find him at right-turn.org. Be sure to check out the show notes at theartofmattmckee.com for all the links and subscribe to my newsletter for updates on the site. You can reach me for questions or comments on Twitter at McKeePhoto, on Instagram at McKee underscore photo, or drop me a line matt at mckeephotography.com this episode of cherry bomb the podcast could not have been done without the help of suzanne schultz and canvas fine arts the specialist in coaching for creatives and editing by bill shamlian at orb sound thanks for listening and let's start the conversation